Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. Today, we're hearing from Joshua and Leonard Harlan of Harlan Capital. This is the second interview I've done where we have two guests at the same time, and I have to say this dynamic has created a very enjoyable interview. Josh has led a career in investment banking for media and entertainment, and now private equity investing. He's the architect of Harlan's asset light investment strategy. Leonard brings over five decades of experience on Wall Street, having, as he says, wrote a magical carpet through his career in finance. It's the combination of this experience that opens us up to such an interesting conversation with these two. If you haven't already guessed it, Joshua and Leonard are a son and father team who've come together to formulate and execute a remarkable investment strategy. What I really like is that their success has been built on a combination of identifying new school opportunities, but investing on old school values and principles of making good deals. You'll hear Josh talk us through their focus on the asset light economy and Leonard share his views and optimism for the innovation that forms part of the US economic engine. The generational separation of views has given them a grounded and exciting approach to investing and I appreciate that they've shared their insights with us. You're going to hear some great perspectives, so enjoy the show. On the line, we have Joshua Harlan and Leonard Harlan of Harlan Capital Partners. Gentlemen, I was introduced to you and told that you operate a very interesting alternative investment advisory firm focusing on niche and emerging asset classes. And to be frank, it really struck my interest and I thought it would be an interesting conversation with both of you to dive into what you're doing in the world of emerging asset classes. So what I'd like to do, Josh and Leonard, is get introductions from both of you and we can dive into what is Harlan Capital Partners. Josh, can I hand it over to you for a bit of an introduction? Yeah, absolutely. Glad to uh, be here and thanks for having us. We founded Harlan Capital Partners about 10 years ago. And as you mentioned, the DNA of the firm really relates to our interest in emerging and unconventional asset classes. And it rests on some really interesting developments in the economy overall that we've seen through our careers and that we are trying to organize ourselves to take advantage of in the form of our investment strategy. Prior to starting Harlan Capital, I had spent most of my career as an investment banker at Allen & Company, which, as people may know, focuses on media and technology investments. So I had a lot of exposure to companies that have intellectual property and other kinds of intangible assets as a very important part of their activities and of their assets. And prior to that, I did my law degree at Yale Law School, and among my coursework there were courses on intellectual property and media. So I've had an interest in that area for a long time. 
And as we'll talk about what I saw in my previous career and what we've been really working around at Harvard Capital are changes in the economy linked to the growing importance of intangible assets and changes in the way that firms are structured that lead to less vertical integration and more dependency on licensing or leasing assets that are not owned by the firm. And as we'll talk about, that's really the essence of our strategy. I, I think that's, yeah, that's where I'm looking forward to getting into because I think there's some interesting nuances there, probably things that people either don't think about or frankly just don't even know about. So I'm looking forward to that. Leonard, can we get an introduction from you as well? You've got a number of years in the business and a really, I think, a seasoned career. So I'd love to hear your experience. Thank you. I was a lucky guy right out of Harvard Business School in 1965. I was able to join what was then a uh, breakthrough firm on Wall Street called Donaldson, Lufkin, and Jenred. And it was a thrilling opportunity. I've had a 55-year career on Wall Street, which has been just a magical carpet. In 1987, John Castle and I established Castle Harlan. He and I met at DLJ. We were colleagues at DLJ. And subsequently, he went on to run DLJ. And in 1987, 33 years ago, we founded a buyout firm. And what was interesting is we raised ourselves without any help because there weren't agents of particular note at that time. We raised our first fund together of $125 million, which we thought was just extraordinary, and so did many of our friends in terms of its size. Today, $125 million is viewed in a very different fashion. Mm. So we've been in the buyout business. We were always generalists, and I've had the privilege of seeing and investing in a bunch of different industries. And one of the things we wound up doing was diversifying into Australia and taking our technology there and creating a joint venture called CHAMP, Castle Harlan Australian Mezzanine Partners. The acronym is CHAMP. And established that in 99, which went on to become a major corporate buyout firm there. And we lived on and off in Australia for some 18 years. So I've also had that wonderful magic carpet of seeing the buyout industry from afar and also from a very, very small base, both in the United States and in Australia. You know what strikes me is, is really interesting here is the combination of your experience where collectively we're, we're of the generations that have seen digital and analog collide. What experience, Leonard, and what a combination we have. So what I want to do now is let's get into Harlan and where you're focused now. I think something that was of interest to me is talking about the asset light economy. Uh, Josh, can you build on that for us? Yeah, absolutely. An observation that was made back in 2018 by Warren Buffett was that the four largest companies today do not need any net tangible assets. And that's dramatically different than if you look back a generation ago when the largest companies tended to be companies like an, an Exxon, a GE, a GM that had an enormous amount of tangible assets. In the past, 
typically companies needed very large amounts of capital in order to be successful. Businesses tended to be vertically integrated and to own all of their own mission critical assets. And value was derived in large part from tangible assets that were owned by the companies themselves. Now, and we think in the future, companies can succeed and grow with relatively smaller amounts of capital on a historical basis. Businesses increasingly are leasing or licensing the assets that they need on demand. And value is really being derived not as much from tangible assets as from services, from formal intellectual property, copyrights, patents, and trademarks, and from informal intellectual property, which includes data, customer lists, customized software, network effects, et cetera. So what we've really seen emerging is an economy in which you have media companies that outsource the production of content, shops that are not linked to physical stores, airlines that own few, if any, planes. You know, this is what we are talking about when we're talking about the asset light economy. Hmm. It's such a, a change and almost a, there's a fragmentation there, but every piece of this asset light economy has some aspect of a value chain there and obviously some aspect of a, an investability in which you can go after. And I can definitely see it here how this ties into your early experience in the, in the media investment banking. But what are some of the niches or the, the areas that you focus on specifically with Harlan Capital? And what are the nuances of those? Well, at a high level, we organize the sectors that we look at into three broad categories. One is media and intellectual property. The second is financial assets. And the third is real assets. So the first two categories are intangibles, IP on the one hand, financial assets on the other. And the third category are tangible assets. And across those three areas, what we're trying to do is to either invest in asset light businesses that generally are related to media, fintech, e-commerce, and those types of sectors, or on the other hand, to invest directly into assets, either tangible or intangible, that are leased or licensed by asset light businesses. So that's the essence of what we're trying to do. And we can kind of go down into a more granular description of some of the different areas in each of those categories for you, if you'd like yeah. us to. You know, why not? I mean, there's like, just as one aspect, I thought it was really interesting that you look at Amazon resellers as opportunities of all things. So perhaps there's, there's areas you can expand on there, but yeah. Why didn't you go down that path? Well, why don't I start with the, the media and IP space? We've invested in rights and royalties that are related to films, television shows, music, and drug royalties. So in, in all those cases, we're dealing with assets whose value is underpinned either by copyright, in the case of film, television, and music, or by patents, as it is the case with drugs. And what we've observed in those industries is that there has been a movement over time from vertical integration where companies own all their own assets to in licensing of intellectual property. And that leads to a much more fragmented landscape 
of ownership of the intellectual property, which means that there's a lot more opportunities for investment. So as an example, a generation or two ago, the large pharmaceutical companies had vigorous internal research and development efforts that led to a lot of the drug discovery that took place. Today, a lot of drug discovery takes place in small biotech companies or in universities. And if a drug looks promising, it will generally be licensed by a large pharmaceutical company, which will take over the job of putting it through the FDA approval process and then marketing it if it's successful and approved. But what that means is that biotech companies and universities end up owning royalties on those drugs once they're out and on the market. And those royalties can be bought, sold, financed, borrowed against, et cetera. Mm. So similarly in the film and TV space, if you look back at the studio system of the 40s and 50s, virtually all aspects of movie making were vertically integrated. The studios would have on staff as employees, writers, directors, producers, actors, etc. Today, every film and television show is a special purpose company. Everyone is contracted in for that particular film or television show. There may be royalties or what in the industry are called third-party participations that are issued to many different participants ranging from the actors to the director to the producers to outside investors who may have put up some of the budget. And so once you've got something that is released, you have a whole bunch of people who have income generating interests in that piece of content. And that means that there's a lot more opportunity for investment because it's not all owned by one big company. Mm-hmm. Well, it's got to be a very complicated world. And, and I'd like to touch on that in a little bit. But something that comes to mind is as you're sharing that, you speak about how pharmaceuticals and how the movie industry as an example has changed over decades. And the question, Leonard, I have for you is, how have you seen the world of investing change and, and our economy? And even what parallels have you seen? And then maybe we can get into both of your outlooks on what's happening now. Well, if I look at the buyout industry, today it's a very, very mature industry. And it has all the earmarks of a mature industry. The returns are much lower. There are many more players and it's very hard to differentiate oneself. When we got started as Castle Harlan, we were generalists. That's very hard to be. It's a classic case of capital chasing deals, whereas in the early days, it was deals chasing capital. And the level of relationships was very different. In fact, Harlan Capital reminds me a lot of the old days because we really value our relationships. We value the loyalty that we have to both sides of the equation, our investors as well as to our investment groups. And this has changed dramatically. In the old days, handshakes were the key. And today it's all transactions and lots of lawyers and all kinds of thick legal agreements of one sort or another with the threats of litigation and need for insurance and all of that. That has changed. 
but it is not changed for us because we feel more comfortable in that sense of being on the smaller side so that we have lots of flexibility and maneuverability and we look out for what is best for our investors. In other words, we take a clear fiduciary look at what we're doing. In today in the industry, we've moved from that aspect to in many cases, selling out the best investments in the buyout funds and the best deals in order to generate a quick and high IRR and therefore be able to go on to raise the next fund. And the focus is on raising funds and getting bigger, and it then becomes really transactional. Whereas in the days of before, it was not transactional. It was what's the right thing to do at the right time. And what thrills me is the culture that uh, Josh has set for our firm is really reminiscent of the days when I started in the business. So I'm very, very fortunate. That's really interesting to hear. It's, um, it's almost, this is Harlan Castle 2.0, but Harlan Capital and focused on the current asset classes, which obviously are, are not saturated by tons of capital, just chasing deals. So that's, that's uh, right. Yeah. That's very right. interesting. Now, that's right. what a, what about going forward? I mean, we've, we're seeing unprecedented times now, and, and perhaps it's the best place to be in an asset light economy if from just kind of a, a liquidity standpoint and given the hardships that a lot of people and a lot of companies are going through. But what's your outlook and what are we facing here and, and how are you guys adjusting to the prevailing conditions? Well, I guess I, I, can, I can take that on. You know, I think that what everyone is seeing is that digital is changing everything. And it presents enormous challenges for many legacy business models. And it presents equally or greater opportunities for new and emerging businesses that are able to take advantage of the unprecedented aspects of digital, which include the ability to scale incredibly quickly, to be completely international and customer base without having physical operations all over the place. There are enormous advantages for these kinds of companies. And I think that what we've been gravitating towards is really the intersection of the media and intellectual property industries on the one hand and the specialty finance space on the other with digital. So where media connects with digital where specialty finance connects with digital, the firms that are able to be at the intersection of that Venn diagram seem to us like the firms that are scaling the most quickly with the least capital and that are attracting the highest valuations. With somewhat of the the turmoil there, I guess you're seeing there, there's more stability within these companies given given COVID, given the unprecedented stimulus packages we're seeing coming into the economy. I mean, well, I guess the question is, is two sides here. How do managers and, and the executives of companies that you look at, as well as yourselves, what are you doing to adapt to the future that you see coming from the current times? Well, there's a line that I like, which I think is attributed to the science fiction writer, William Gibson, which is that the, the future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. 
<laughs> okay. And when you have something totally transformative like COVID, it may have the effect of taking some of these unevenly distributed bits of the future and suddenly making them a lot more evenly distributed. Or in other words, you have a decade of change compressed into six months. Mm-hmm. I believe that e-commerce's share of U.S. retail, which had been you know, ticking up very considerably over the last bunch of years, has suddenly jumped from about 12% to 16%. I mean, that's, a, that's an incredibly yeah. significant thing to happen in a short period of time. And we've been really fortunate in that we've positioned ourselves where a number of our investments are taking advantage of the increased amount of usage of certain kinds of services that are taking place when people need to use digital more than they ever have before. So our media content investments, our e-commerce investments have actually been seeing a lot of growth in the current environment. Mm-hmm. I'd like to point out something else from the investment side, which is that in the past, the net asset values in the buyout business were always arbitrarily derived. And in the old days, they were set, as we used to set them, at cost unless there was a significant financial event. And what's happened now is that because of the accountants and also the pension funds who are the major investors, valuations are being presented on a quarterly basis, which gets away from the idea of planning long term. Hmm. Because in the old days, the big advantage of the buyout business was that you could invest in the long term and support a dip in EBITDA in the short run, because ultimately the residual value was the key to success. Well, at Harlan Capital, what we've been focused on is not these arbitrary numbers, although they do play a role in terms of what our NAV is, but more importantly, we are focused on delivering cash. Our investments all deliver cash for one aspect or another on a quarterly basis. And thus, the emphasis is on how we are doing without trying to build up an arbitrary value for these investments. And I think that's a real change because it enables our companies to deal with the long run. And long run may be two or three years or maybe longer, but it enables them to really focus on what's best for their business rather than manipulating the financial numbers. Yes, yeah. It sounds like that that gives the opportunity for those managers to not be chasing the hype to drive valuation versus just focusing on the business and generating cash flow and, and building real companies. Correct. Something that, that comes to mind, gentlemen, is you're both highly educated and highly successful in, in the careers you've built for yourselves. When looking at Harlem, my question is, though, is you focus on a variety of different asset classes. How does this breadth of interest that you have where you focus your energies how does it connect? And then also, how do you not get too diluted in your own capacity to understand the nuances of each of these? Well, I think that there's a commonality for what we're investing in. 
which is that we're looking for contractual sources of cash flow. We're looking for, for situations where there's some kind of ongoing income stream, where there's some kind of legal structure that gives the owner of that asset or the owner of that financial instrument a right to receive that cash flow, and where there may be some kind of asset value that underpins that cash flow. So we really see what we're doing as the discipline of finding and diligencing and structuring contractual sources of cash flow that are underpinned by niche and emerging asset classes. So the breadth of the sectors that we look at makes it seem as though there's an enormous range of different stuff that we're looking at, but that's really the output of a pretty defined investment thesis, which is to find contractual sources of cash flow that are underpinned by niche and emerging asset classes. Hmm. I see where you are there then. I mean, that really, I mean, that's the, the crux of it. <laughs> There's yeah. no deviating well, from that. And in that, right. you so find the, the strength. Of right. Yeah. I mean, whether it's a copyright, a patent, a trademark, a physical asset, a legal claim, whatever it is, it's going through the same process of analysis for us where we're trying to understand what is the contractual right to cash flow here? What underpins it? What can go wrong? What can go right? How can we structure it to try to hopefully create an environment in which there's more than that can go right than can go wrong? So yes, we do set that then against a lot of different asset types and sectors, but there's a discipline that we're starting with. Hmm. We also try to focus on how to mitigate downside risk which is very important to us. Yeah, and understandably so. I have a question that would come from an audience of managers and and entrepreneurs who potentially would be seeking investment from anybody who is, is, you know, they have capital and they need capital to grow their business. And if an entrepreneur was to reach out to you and say, hey, here's my business, it fits within the, the thesis and the niche that you are versed in. What should they know and what is that process of structuring deals that provides you with what you're after, but then also perhaps not the word isn't protects, but finds an equitable deal? What's that process like and what do those deals look like? Well, I think that, you know, there's a couple of different things that are really key. People need to really understand what the addressable market is for what they are trying to do. They need to understand what their own sources of comparative advantage are. They need to have some track record in the activity because we're not really engaging in a venture capital strategy. We're trying Mm -hmm. to bet on some kind of ongoing generation of cash flow. And I think that they need to share some of our interpersonal values, which include a high level of transparency and communication and a sense of collaboration. I feel like our best partnerships with underlying investments are situations where almost from the beginning, we were working collaboratively with the company or the operating partner to try to figure out how do we create a situation where we all win here. And I think that our kind of pattern recognition has gotten better over time. And we're now at the point where we kind of know pretty quickly when we start talking to somebody whether this feels like a Harlan Capital deal or not. 
Okay. I've got a number of other questions. And, and what happens when I do these interviews is questions just start to spin out of the, the discussions we're having. But I want to be respectful of your time here. So something I'm curious about perhaps to, to change direction a bit is both of you are involved with organizations that oversee foreign relations or you know have a close eye on them and national security as well. So as I understand, Leonard, you're on the business executives of national security. Josh, you're a member of the Council of Foreign Relations, of which I dived into that website and, and it was a rabbit hole of very interesting information. But given your interests here, what's your take on the current state of global affairs? And then what are we seeing for opportunities there? <laughs> I think I'm going to let my dad start out with that one. <laughs> okay. Since there's so little going on in the world and so little, <laughs> and, and so little controversy about it, I'll, uh, I'll let my dad handle that easy question. Without getting political, this, it's, a, uh, I, I, it's a... It's a sensitive one for sure, but I'm, yeah, I'm well, curious. Well, I think one thing I think we're going to see for sure is a continuation of a withdrawal from the global village concept. Hmm. And that countries are going to try to become more independent of each other. And in particular here in the States, I think that there, we're going to see much more focus on bringing back here the key elements of our economy and rather than exporting for all the reasons of, of the past. What is really uh, disturbing to me is that we have migrated into a tribal warfare domestic environment, which is so, so upsetting because this sense of patriotism, which was really the, the crowning achievement that mm. de Tocqueville saw in our society, is uh, dissipating. And we are an incredible country. We are incredibly innovative. And I think what we will see is a focus on greater and greater innovation. And that requires an infrastructure which the United States is blessed with. Fundamentally, we have a culture which allows for failure. And there are very few countries around the globe where that can be said. And if anything, failure, if it's done right, can be a badge of glory. And probably mm. Steve Jobs is one of the best examples of that. So you start with failure being accepted. Then you go down and we have now developed an angel community for financing the world of innovation, where today, if somebody has a great idea, they can shout with a megaphone up the street and people will come out of their homes and put up five or ten or fifteen thousand dollars, and lo and behold, the garage innovation is off and running. And then that's followed by a whole infrastructure of financing, which is just marvelous from venture capital to the buyout business to banks, etc. So there's a, been a lot of changes, but I think that they've been for the most part, very positive for the United States. And I am fundamentally optimistic about the direction in which we are headed. And to the extent that people, when their backs are against the wall, create 
new entities. And my guess is we're going to look back over this year and next year and see a huge number of new entities that have been born that we can't even think about right now. And if you look at the universities, the number of innovation centers that are popping up within the university structure, I'm fortunate enough to be on the advisory board of one of them, which is Cornell Tech here in New York City. And it's just extraordinary, the energy level, the creativeness, and all of this within an asset light environment, which means that small amounts of capital can go enormously far. And Mm -hmm. we can be very proud of what this country has accomplished, and there's so much more in front of us. You know, there's something, and Josh, I, I certainly want to hear your aspects on this, your thoughts on this, but when you talk about the global village and us stepping away from that, it's interesting, as I've heard in a couple of conversations I've had lately, more and more discussion about onshoring and how we're bringing things back and what that's going to mean. And what I find really interesting is how much technology and innovation is going to revolutionize even the, the production of hard goods. And for some reason, I find that quite exciting. I think it's, well, I, I think I, it's, part, uh, it's a really good thing. Part, part of the offshoring has been the need for cheap labor. But with the level of innovation that's occurring, that no longer can be a major advantage except in select situations. Mm-hmm. Once you level that out, then it's the productive capacity of new investment. And here's where we shine as a country. Yeah, that's a very good point. I mean, you're hearing even, you know, that our go-to areas for cheap labor as an example, anywhere in Asia, right? You're just seeing the costs now are are in some ways even comparable to what you'd be paying in, in middle America to have things produced. That capacity of innovation is a strong differentiator for the United States and North America. Yes, I should say North America, definitely. Thanks for recognizing us Canadians up here. Listen, we can be proud of the fact that we have the longest non-defended border in the world, and that's something to be celebrated. Yeah, very true. Very true. Josh, uh, what's your take on this? Well, I think that the question of what's some of the larger changes that are going on in the world is obviously a very large subject, some of which interacts with our strategy and and some of it I think is just exogenous to what we're doing. I mean, I won't say too much about the overall global picture, except what I would say from, from my perspective is that we, almost everything about the overall American strategic position is based on a template that was set during the Cold War. Essentially, our diplomacy our military, a lot of different aspects of how we've deployed our instruments of national power, if you will, have been based around a kind of global bargain in which we said to countries around the world that we will underpin certain global institutions and norms, and we will provide implicit, if not explicit, security guarantees, we'll police the sea lanes, we'll do all all sorts of functions, both military and legal and economic and diplomatic, to provide a kind of global security environment, as long as you work with us to combat the Soviet Union. Mm. And obviously, that led to success in the Cold War, 
But I think that one of the biggest problems that we have today is that we never really figured out what we wanted to do next. Hmm. You know, and I, I think that you can say that without being particularly critical of any one political party or of any one president. I think there's still several administrations past the end of the Cold War is a complete lack of consensus about what is America's strategic position in the world supposed to be when the central adversary that was kind of the organizing principle for everything that had gone on for the previous 40 or 50 years is no longer the case. So that, I think, is trying to be dispassionate and trying to be charitable towards many different sides of the political equation. I think that that's a central question that America hasn't solved for itself yet. But I share my dad's optimism. America will figure that out eventually. I think it was Winston Churchill who said something like, Americans always do the right thing after trying every other available option. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Now, in terms of global things that relate more directly to our strategy, it's a fact that we have an increasingly digitally interconnected world. We have a larger and larger global middle class. We have a ubiquity of use of mobile devices across the globe. And so that creates unprecedented opportunities for everything that relates to digital. Again, whether it's content-oriented, whether it's finance-oriented, everything that's digital can benefit from that interconnectedness, from that scale, from the ubiquity with which people are connected. Just looking at some of the content-based investments that we've made, it's amazing the demand for media and entertainment content that has emerged in Latin America, in Asia, in India. It's a much more global market for media and entertainment than it ever has been before. And we think that's really exciting. Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. Gentlemen, as as we're nearing the top of the hour here, I want to um, be respectfully retired. And so I think perhaps can we wrap up with some final thoughts from you? And then also, should entrepreneurs be interested in potentially partnering with you? How would they go about doing that? Josh, can I hand it over to you for final thoughts on our discussion? I would just reiterate some of the themes that we've talked about. We are very excited about the increased importance of intangible assets in today's economy. We think that more and more of the most successful businesses are built around services and knowledge rather than products. And we see more and more leasing and licensing and outsourcing of the assets that are needed by businesses, giving those businesses a lot more flexibility in many ways than if they actually own the assets. And our job is to find in that dynamic the businesses and the assets that are the most interesting and to structure income-producing investments that take advantage of the dynamics that we're perceiving here. And if we can do that, and at the same time have terrific long-term relationships with our investment partners, with our investors, with other stakeholders, and have fun while doing it, then that would be what we would see as the definition of success. Hmm. Uh, Leonard? Any final thoughts? Well, 
I think Josh just said it all, but I want to emphasize one thing, and that is having fun. It's a very important part of being in business, and I am having a ball being my son's partner. It's a father's dream, and I have learned so much from him, given the generational separation of views, and I think that as a result, we've had a terrific, terrific approach to the business. So I'm very excited about that. I'm optimistic, as you cited before, about where the economy is going to go and is going. And we're very fortunate to be positioned the way we are. We have marvelous partners. And something I think that really deserves to be taken is it's just not we have marvelous partners. We call upon our partners for their advice, their counsel, their insights, their views on what we're doing. So it really is a set of old-fashioned values, which we think by remaining in the size and in the direction that we're going, we can continue well into the future and regard it a little bit like an extended family. And we really thank you for this opportunity to tell you about ourselves. Well, Leonard, you don't have to thank me. This has been uh, just a a very enjoyable conversation for myself here. So I thank you for taking the time. And Josh, to you as well, thanks for coming on and and sharing both your insights and experience. Be well received. Thank you very much for, uh, for giving us the opportunity. We've enjoyed it as well. And I'll just add that I feel incredibly fortunate as well to get to work with my dad, to be partnered up with somebody who's got so many decades of experience and success, but who is still generous enough to let me carve out certain areas that might be new or emerging and to partner with me to explore what we can do there together. It's a very, very special opportunity that I feel very grateful for. That's fantastic. Gentlemen, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.